Okay, uh, today's reading um, comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. I'm reading from the NIV version, and I think that's on page 1182. So that's Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. It's entitled, The Supremacy of the Son of God. So chapter 1, verses 15 to 22. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Great, thanks, Brian. Well, if you could uh, make sure that you can see the TV screen as well as a Bible, um, it'd be great to keep that passage from Colossians open, but I'm going to be dotting around where we're going to lots of different passages. And can I add my welcome to Hannah, especially if you're visiting? Great that you've joined us. Great if you're a regular here. Uh, as you may uh, be aware, I've been away on the Anglican Mission in England conference, which was fantastic. It was such a, an oasis for me. And uh, the whole topic of the conference was delighting in Jesus Christ. So let's just pray now that that will be the result of our time together, that we might delight even more in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you that you have made all things, that all things are in you, that all things are for you. And all things are for that reconciliation that you have worked through your death and resurrection. Lord, please show us this morning your greatness, your power, your love, that we might delight in you. For your glory's sake. Amen. Well, who are we as a church here at uh, Cornerstone Church, Colchester? We're seeking to be a loving community, growing in Jesus Christ by word, that's the Bible, and the Holy Spirit. But one of the things we may not be so aware, particularly if we've joined the church uh, fairly recently, is that we are committed to reformed theology. What, What do we mean by that? It just means that the Bible shapes all that we seek to do. And Anglican theology is a subset of Reformed theology. And it emphasizes the sovereignty of God, because that is what the Bible teaches. But in our day, in our generation, our culture, we don't just want to be clinging on without any questioning of the theology of the past, good as that is, and it must inform us. We want to be committed to something called Semper Reformanda. Um, 
there's some um, introductory um, sermons on the website where I go into a bit more detail about that. What does it mean? It just means we're always seeking to shape church life and discipleship by the Bible. And unfortunately, the church seems to have failed to do this for about the last 150 years, which is why only 4.7% of the country will be found in church on a Sunday morning. Now, as you know, I've recently finished a master's and I did a dissertation, uh, which is the subject of this sermon. And Mim, when she heard this, was slightly worried. And she said, you're not going to try and cram your dissertation into 25 minutes, are you? No, no. This is just the tip of the iceberg. I'm trying to boil things down to an essence. And I would really appreciate any questions and feedback, because if we're going to be a community which is bringing the truth of the Bible afresh into our cultural location, we're going to get things wrong. I'm going to get things wrong. And we need to be holding one another accountable to what the Bible actually says. I need to be accountable to other ministers in, in Amy and those who've got greater theological minds than mine. Here is what we'll be thinking about this morning. So do test what I'm saying, as you should every sermon with Scripture. This is what we'll be thinking about. Creation is Christ-centered, so we should all thank him and live for him by seeing creation through him. I'll just say that again. Creation is Christ-centered, so we should all thank him and live for him by seeing creation through him. And you might say, oh, I already know all that, John. Well, just, just hold on, hold on. We, we live in a culture that has largely accepted a particular account of the natural world. Uh, we encounter it every time we... Here, national treasures like Sir David Attenborough. He's still going, isn't he? There's still uh, natural uh, history programs on TV. It, it's believed by most people in our nation, in the West, like uh, the local family that Dave and I met after Carol's with a pint. They were saying things like this. If God is all-powerful and all-loving, there would not be any evil. So given that there is, he cannot exist the inconsistent triad, if you've come across that. And uh, your teenagers will be being taught that at school. And uh, th this family, a, a local family, uh, not particularly highly educated, I don't, I don't think, uh, believe that science has disproved the existence of a creator. There is no God. That is our cultural atmosphere, isn't it? And, and so if that is the culture we're living in, it's being pumped into our heads. We will tend to lack confidence that Jesus Christ is the creator. Now, uh, onto our first picture. I just want to summarize. Oh, no, back one. So, on the left is, is what the Bible teaches. There is a God who reigns over people sovereignly. He, has, uh, he is behind creation, and therefore we learn from reality what morality is. What God reveals about what is right and wrong comes from what he has written into creation. Our culture is on the right. Because there's no God, people are free to impose on chaos, evolutionary chaos, whatever they think is right and wrong. There's no such thing as objective morality. There's no such thing as objective truth. That's the culture we live in because our culture has got rid of God. 
But the reality is that creation is Christ-centered. So everyone should thank him, live for him, and see creation through him. But we need to be given the right spectacles by which to see creation. If we're going to be really convinced that what we find in the Bible is the same reality as what we see out there, we need to look at creation through what the Bible says. So, what do you see when you look at the natural world? On to our next picture. It might be the grandeur of some mountains. Anybody love going to the Alps? Uh, the beauty of a bird like a kingfisher. Uh, I love seeing kingfishers by the riverside. It might be that you're dreaming of getting to the Caribbean island with all the vibrant colours. Or the beauty of a, the microscopic world. may not be your thing, but those are diatoms. I think they're very beautiful and very mathematical. Or it might be the breathtaking beauty of stars and planets. Or for some of you, it might be a horse or a cute kitten. Now, most people, apart from aesthetic snobs, will say they see amazing beauty in nature. And it would be tempting for us to say, yes, nature is beautiful because God is beautiful. We see design because there is a designer. We see breathtaking glory in nature, so there must be a sublime and beautiful and awe-inspiring creator. And the Bible does clearly teach this. So keep your finger in Colossians and turn back with me if you want to, or just listen as I read this. Psalm 19 says this. Page 552, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. The glory of God, his worth, his weight is perceived by absolutely everyone on the planet from the moment they draw their first breath to the moment they take their last. Everyone perceives God as the creator. Everyone knows something of his glory. And yet, by nature, we all suppress that knowledge, which we learned a few months ago in the book of Romans, chapter 1. So if you want to turn to it, page 1,128, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, or just listen. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who do what? Suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Everyone experiences God, knows God, hears God in creation, but we all suppress it. That's in Paul's argument, seeking to, to show that all people are under sin. We all face God's wrath, his judgment. What we need is, uh, and I've just gone to the internet, you know that, um, by what I'm going to say, Harry, Harry Potter experts amongst us, which I'm not one, will know that spectre specs 
allow you to see rack spurts, which are magical creatures that confuse your mind. Or if, more like me, you're into the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the SEP field makes you not see what is right in front of your eyes, like aliens at Lords or whatever it might be. And SEP, because it's somebody else's problem. It's not our problem. We wouldn't be so stupid as to suppress what is right before our eyes. But the Bible says, yes, that's, that's exactly what we're like. We blind ourselves to God's truth. And we think our objections to belief in God are somebody else's problem, namely God's, rather than ours. Now, over the last 200 years, the church has embraced all kinds of philosophy rather than the Bible. Uh, philosophy suggests that God is only seen in the good and the beautiful and the true. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The spectacles that we have been given in the church as Christians is that God is only seen in fluffy cats and beautiful sunsets and orderly mathematical symmetrical design in nature. But that's not what the Bible says. The God of the Bible is the living God, the God of reality, not of ivory towers and philosophers. He's not neatly beautiful. He's seen in everything. So what do we think is ugly in creation? Ugly even in a terrible but kind of beautiful way. Or maybe it's earthquakes or tornadoes that just snap trees like they're matchsticks. Or maybe it's a heron that's very good at catching fish and then swallows them a whole and alive so they die very slowly in a bath of acid. Or maybe it's sharks that seem to take thrill in hurling their prey around, which you can see just at the bottom there. It's a sea lion, which gives you some idea of how big that great white is. Or maybe it's disease that is also strangely symmetrical and mathematical and beautiful. Or maybe it's a crocodile, oh no, dinosaur even. <laughs> that, that made it look like I don't know much biology, doesn't it? Um, that is actually a T-Rex. Um, and, and you can see, you, you want to meet that? Is, that? is that beautiful? It's terrifying. Glad they're extinct. Or maybe it's a crocodile taking a zebra just ripping it limb from limb. Or lions that go round and kill all the previous dominant lion's children so that its progeny, its offspring, are more likely to be produced. So this is what nature is really like. And uh, it's been expressed in poetry um, at least since 1850, but way before then as well in lots of different ways through various atheistic um, ideas. This was written by Alfred Lord Tennyson in 1850, nine years before Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species. So careful of the type 
but no. From scarped cliff and quarried stone, she cries. It's typifying nature. A thousand types, or we might say species, a thousand types are gone. I care for nothing. All shall go. Thou makest thine appeal to me. I bring to life, I bring to death. The spirit does but mean the breath. I know no more. And he, shall he, man, her last work, who seemed so fair, such splendid purpose in his eyes, who rolled the psalm to wintry skies, but built him fanes of fruitless prayer, who trusted God was love indeed, and love creation's final law, though nature, red in tooth and claw, with ravin shrieked against his creed. See, Tennyson is expressing the contradiction between what the church has been saying for a couple of centuries, that God is just love, but nature is red in tooth and claw. So how can that God possibly exist? 99% of all species are extinct. So if nature is so loving, how can it be that so much has become extinct. Nature is not cuddly and cosy, however much we may delight with the children in fluffy cats and daisies and chimpanzees. Fluffy cats kill mice for fun, you know that. Not food. Uh, and daisies, as with all flowers, are beautiful for the purpose of reproduction. And chimpanzees engage in rape, infanticide and genocide. So they're not that lovely after all. And what we may be saying now is, yes, yes, I know that that's what nature is like, John, but it's the fall. It's the fall of Adam and Eve. And that's true. There is a historical fall, maybe about 10,000 years ago, recorded for us by literary tradition from the first that's come down to us. But the problem is, that would mean the world is, a, is about 10,000 years old when farming began, because the context of Genesis 1 and 2 is, is farming. You see, the problem is that the world, and we may disagree, and do ask me questions about this afterwards, is not 10,000 years old. And the Bible sees God in everything, not just the cute and cuddly. So let's just check that what I'm saying is what the Bible teaches. Turn with me to Psalm 29. I don't have a page number, I'm afraid. If somebody gets there and wants to shout out. Psalm 558 was that. 558, thank you. Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Why? Verse 6. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. Where do we see God's glory? In earthquakes and storms. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forests bare. And in his temple all cry, glory. Storms, 
earthquakes, fires, all reflect the glory of God. Not just the beauty and azure seas, but earthquakes, volcanoes, tornadoes. And this is the perspective of the wisdom literature in the Bible. The Bible doesn't just use those aspects of nature that speak of God's glory and are cuddly and fluffy and beautiful. Wonderful those, those things are. It also draws lessons from fearsome predators like the crocodile. Job chapter 41, verse 7. Again, sorry, I haven't put I ran out of time this morning to put in the page numbers. Job 41, does somebody want to shout out the page number? Job's four, before the Psalms, so you just flip. 541. So Job chapter 41, verse 7. So here, the Elihu and God answered the objections of Job to the injustice of suffering with this kind of thing. Can you make a pet of it, that's Leviathan, like a bird, or put it on a leash for the young women of your house? Will traders barter for it? Will they divide it up among the merchants? Can you fill its side with harpoons or its head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on it, you will never do it again. And what's the conclusion? As the Lord speaks... Who has a claim against me that I must, must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. And then in Job 38, verse 39, if you just flip back. Do you hunt prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? And the answer is the Lord. The Lord provides prey for the lions. The Lord provides carrion for the scavenging ravens. See, the activity of God is not just in those orderly, designed, beautiful things, but in storms, in lightning, in clouds, in rain, in predators. Why? Well, because all of creation points to God, because as we find out in the New Testament, it is all about Christ. Here's my theme sentence, if you like. Creation is Christ-centered. So give thanks to him and live for him by seeing creation through him. But what does that mean? Well, now we can turn to Colossians. After doing a bit of clearance work, I hope we can see that the Bible uses everything in creation because God is sovereign over creation. And when we come to the new, creation, uh, the, the new Testament, we learn that Jesus is sovereign over all creation. We, we've been seeing this in Revelation, haven't we? I'm, I'm just, in a sense, wanting to press this home. Uh, the one who opens the scrolls of history and unleashes demonic activity in the world is the Lamb who was slain. Verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He owns it, inherits it. For in him, in him, in Christ, the Son of God, all things were created, things in heaven 
and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or, or, or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What Paul is teaching is that Jesus is so big and powerful that all things have been created by him, all things have been created for him, and all created things are in him. You and me, this pub, the galaxies, aardvarks and asteroids, zebras and zoos, but also Satan, all the authorities and powers that are invisible, which we know are satanic powers because they're the powers that Jesus defeats through the cross in chapter 2. Jesus is that big. He's that powerful. Why is he this big and powerful? Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, we know, don't we, that we don't live for God as we ought. We don't want to live for God as we ought. He has created us to live for him, but we are all rebels. We face his wrath we're alienated from God. We're, we're enemies in our minds against him. We do what is evil. That's what Paul says in the next few verses, 21 and following. But if you or I have said to Jesus, please take the punishment I deserve for my enmity against you. You're, you're my king and my Lord and my God. Then we are reconciled to God. We are forgiven. If we don't believe that yet, do do come on Christianity Explore. Do come to questions with a pint. But I take it that most of us here have done that. But can we see how vast this reconciliation that Jesus has won through the cross is? Verse 20, through him. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus died not just to deal with our sin, but to heal the whole cosmos in its subjection to futility and death, to reconcile stars to God and herons to God and lions to God and lambs to God. The perspective of the Bible is that the cross is significant the whole of creation from beginning to end. Now, I know this is, is new for some of us, or, or perhaps it's not as familiar as maybe it ought to be. And I think, uh, just as I sort of draw things to a close, I'm just going to show other parts of the Bible where this perspective that God created in order to redeem is clear that his ideas about rescuing people like you and I and sending Jesus to redeem us came before anything was made. Let's just turn back to Genesis chapter 3. 
I think it's very easy for us to miss what is in plain sight as we read the Bible because we're, we're inheritors of the, the church's preoccupation with philosophy for the last 150 or 200 years rather than its preoccupation with the Bible. And that, if you like, has taken off the spectacles that we should be using to look at the Bible, which is that we see everything through Jesus, even Genesis chapter 3. I mean, Jesus said, didn't he, in Luke 24, the whole scriptures are about me. So this is about Jesus, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Who is the snake? It's the devil, isn't it? It doesn't actually say that. We understand that from later on in Scripture. What's he doing there? Why did God allow fallen angels who presumably had already fallen into the Garden of Eden? The answer is, he always planned that Jesus would come. He always planned that people like you and I would need rescuing from Satan. I know that there's some dangerous theological territory and we need to be very careful, but don't take my word for it. Take the Apostle Peter's word for it. So turn with me. Oh, I haven't put the page number again. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. So, so leave. We'll go back to Genesis 3 in a minute. 1217. So this is Peter. This is the mind of the Apostles. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. I've, I've put them all on, on the WhatsApp group, so if, if uh, you want to look at them later and ask me questions throughout the week, that would be great. Anyway, Peter is writing to persecuted Christians scattered throughout modern-day Turkey, uh, a little bit before uh, the book of Revelation talks to the similar kind of churches. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from our forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world. Or, oh, I've got a page number, page 1171, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. If we're a Christian here this morning, when were we chosen to belong to Jesus Christ for the praise of his glorious grace? Chapter 1, verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. When were you chosen? Before anything was made. And you say, well, this is all just sort of airy-fairy theology, John. Why is this important? Remember why it's important? We need to have the right perspective, the biblical perspective. We need to see creation through the lens of Jesus because then our faith is connected to reality. If Jesus has created all things, all things beautiful and ugly, destructive and terrifying, even those things which appear to be evil, like earthquakes and tornadoes, were created by him and permitted by him. doesn't mean that Jesus has created evil. doesn't mean that God is the source of evil. But he's permitted evil to come into his world. And he will redeem it. He will reconcile it. He will remake it. And it even applies to marriage. Um, uh, flip forward in Ephesians to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28. Ephesians 5, verse 28. 
In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. Pact of marriage is Jesus laying down his life for his bride. And then Paul quotes from Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's before the fall of Adam. But then he puts this commentary on it. This is a profound mystery, i.e. verse 31, i.e. Genesis chapter 2. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. He's saying Genesis chapter 2, before the Adamic fall was all about Jesus and the church. God created marriage because he'd already chosen to send Jesus into the world for his bride. Why is marriage the way it is? Because it pictures the redemption of the church by Jesus Christ, decided, decreed by God before anything was made. See, creation is Christ-centered, so thank him. And live for him by seeing creation through him. Which means we don't have to ignore all the evil stuff out there. Or the ugly stuff. Or the destructive stuff. Jesus created all things and permitted evil to come into the world through fallen angels. For his glory. For his glorious grace for his redemption and his justice. Now, just a couple of things before we close. This does not mean that God created the universe with evil in it, but he has permitted evil to enter it. And he's sovereign over it all. Jesus Christ is sovereign over it all. It doesn't mean that God has created some beings for destruction and hell, whether angels or humans. He only brings his justice to bear once people and angels have sinned. But it does mean, and here's a few practical applications, that as we teach the children about creation, if we're seeking to be reformed and reforming, and as we seek to set up a forest school, although we're going to call it something else, we need to be teaching the whole of the Bible's perspective, not just a narrow and sentimental perspective that the church has embraced for the last 200 years and been toothless in the face of atheism. Because atheism comes along and says, you see all that ugly and cruel and destructive stuff? That shows there's no God. And we want to say, no, it doesn't. Everything shows that there is a God. And you know it. God will reconcile all things to himself. Dinosaurs and ichthyosaurs and trilobites. It will all be redeemed by the one who has made all things. Jesus Christ. And why do you see suffering and blood in creation, because there was coming a one who would reconcile all things by his suffering and his blood, who is in control of all things. You better get right with him. 
You better stop suppressing the truth that Jesus Christ is the creator. That all things have been made by him and for him and in him. If you reject Jesus Christ, you are suppressing the truth. You need to come to him. Let's just pray as we close. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you that we believe that new truth comes from your Holy Word that fits us to live for you and for your glory in our day and our generation. Lord, please continue to teach us by your Holy Spirit. Teach your church. Teach us that we might be strengthened to resist the culture that we live in, which suppresses the truth and so faces your wrath.